you would take out your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, we're now in chapter 5. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the gathering of your people Thank you for the gift of music and giving us the ability to lift our voices and sing your praises. There is nothing more worthy of praise than you, Lord, and we are thankful to sing with one voice the glory of who you are and the glory of your Son and the glory of your gospel. And Father, now as we look into your word and we see the story of Christ and how he reveals himself once again, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would help us to see him, to gaze upon his beauty, and to see that he is to be the center of all of our desires, that there is nothing to be above him, that he is both our Savior, our Lord, and our judge. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we have Christ. So that day when we stand before him, we stand robed in his righteousness and not alone. So, Father, be with us now as we dive into the Word, and, Lord, I pray that you would breathe upon it so it would do its faithful work in the hearts of your people. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, as we continue to watch our world spiral out of control... There is one passage of Scripture that is becoming more and more easy to understand, 
as we see it lived out before our eyes every week. And that passage of Scripture is, of course, Romans chapter 1. Now, I am not going to read that entire chapter to you. I would encourage you to do so in, in light of what's going on in our world. But in that chapter, Paul lists off all manner of sin that can be found in the human heart. And it used to be that these types of sins at least carried with them enough cultural shame that those who lived in them still tried to keep them hidden. But now it's considered a virtue to flaunt your shame. But really, all of that can be attributed to one main sin that Paul brings out in verse 25 of that chapter, where he says this of humanity. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, we who live in a civilized society can read that and often think that that passage belongs to those ignorant pagans who are out there in the jungle somewhere bowing down to idols of this world. That is not at all what Paul is talking about or limiting this to. Ultimately, this is about the worship of self. And the worship of self takes place whenever you elevate your own desires above God. Any inordinate desire that takes place in the heart beyond the desire for God is idolatry. And Christians are not immune from falling back into those sins. And for that reason, it is imperative that we, as followers of Christ, guard the desires of our heart. Well, today we are going to look at a passage that vividly illustrates how blinding and dangerous inordinate desires truly are. So far, we've worked through the first section of this gospel, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where John has established who Christ is and what he has done all through the beginning of his ministry. Jesus has established who he is and what he came to do through various acts and various discourses in this first section. The fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, the King of Israel, and the prophet spoken about by Moses have all been attested to through this beginning section. And the fact that he is indeed the Savior of the world the one who is to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness in order to grant eternal life to all of those who would look upon him. All of that has been established. And now, as Jesus continues his ministry, proclaiming the same hope, continuing to reveal who he is in various ways, things take a turn. And we begin to see how dark this world truly is. Uh, the words of John 3 become palpable, starting with this passage, that men love darkness rather than the light. Here in our passage, we're going to see today two statements from Christ that again reveal who He is and show us why He must be the center of all of our desires. Now, Jesus shows Himself in this story to be both Savior and judge. And as we get into this story, 
we're going to see that this is one that doesn't have the same uplifting result as did the Samaritan woman or the royal official. One that ended in a revival among the Samaritans and the other ended in a salva- in salvation for an entire household. But here we have a, a very different ending. And it is due to the dullness and blindness of the human heart that cares more about this life and the things of this life than it does about God and about who He is and about what He's doing. And this story ought to cause us to examine our hearts. As His people, we need to ensure that He is at the center of everything for us. That He is the thing that drives us, that constrains us. That He, above everything else, is what we are living for. It is Christ and Christ alone. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's look at this passage, and let's start by looking at the setting that John establishes for us here that leads up to the first statement where Jesus shows himself to be the Savior. Look with me at verse 1. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So as we have talked about before in several places, when John uses the phrase, After this... He is not talking about the next immediate thing that happened in history. Now, this was just his way of moving through uh, one, from one scene in the, in the narrat- narration to another. And this is obviously the case here because we had been tracing this whole story of Jesus' trip back from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. And now, all of a sudden, he's heading right back to Jerusalem. Well, he's not heading right back. A significant amount of time has passed uh, in between these two events. But here again, he is going back to Jerusalem for another Jewish feast. Now, John doesn't tell us which feast this was. The Jews had several feasts that they celebrated throughout the year. And in the law of God, in Deuteronomy 16, God had required that all Jewish males were to travel to Jerusalem to come to the temple for three of those Jewish feasts, the Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Weeks. Now, John brings up some of these various feasts throughout this gospel, but this is the only place in the book where he does not specify which one he is talking about. And likely because in this passage, the feast itself does not have any real bearing on the story that unfolds. In other places, it serves as a, an illustration or an important backdrop to what's going on, But not so much here. It's simply mentioned to give us explanation as to why Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to this pool of Bethesda, which contained a multitude of sick and lame people. Now, historically, there is general consensus about where this pool was. We we are pretty certain, archaeologically, that this this pool has been discovered, and we know where it is. Uh, The reference to the Sheep Gate there is a reference to an opening that would have been on the northern wall of Jerusalem. And it was constructed during the time of the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 3. 
Uh, Nehemiah even mentions the sheep gate a couple of times. And just inside that sheep gate, which would have been just to the north side of the temple, was this pool, the pool of Bethesda. And really what you had here was two pools that were side by side, and they were about the size of a football field. Um, and, and right in between these two pools, what divided them was a roofed colonnade. It was like a, a walkway of sorts. A, a colonnade is, is a porch or a walkway that would have been lined with pillars to hold a roof up above it. And John mentions this, this is a five, there was five roofed colonnades because you had four sides to the pools and you had one going right down the middle that would have divided them up. Now these pools became associated with mythical-like healing powers, which is why they were crowded with sick people. And specifically, John says that there was a multitude of blind and the lame and the paralyzed, all there in, in some vain hope placed into this pool. But I want you to notice something in your Bibles, something we have to kind of work through. If you would, look at verse 4. Many of you are noticing you don't have a verse 4. If you have an ESV or modern translation, there is no verse 4 there, or it might be in brackets for, for some of your translations. Uh, I want to read the portion of, you, of it that was taken out. It should be in your footnotes. You could look down and you could read along with me. There will be a little footnote. So it's actually the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 that was removed. I want to read it to you, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. It said, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Here's the part that was taken out. Waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the obvious question is, why has this been removed? Or why has this been set into brackets? Well, the reason for that is because of the, all of the most reliable and earliest manuscripts, virtually all of them on this passage, do not include the end of verse 3 and verse 4, showing quite clearly uh, that this was not original to John. John the Apostle did not write the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Now, just so you know, if you're not a, uh, very familiar with textual criticism, uh, we have thousands of Greek manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament that have been recovered more than any other ancient document by miles. Nothing else is even in the same ballpark, which means that we know what the Scripture said because we can bring all these, these fragments together and compare them and, 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 and see exactly what the Bible said. The reliability of your Bibles is absolutely Remarkable, And we're going to spend an entire sermon on this when we get to the end of John chapter 7. I want you to understand this with a little more depth and why this matters. But for today, I think it's important to at least answer the question, if this is not original, how then did it get in here? Well, most likely what happened down the line is when you have all these manuscripts, they didn't have a printing press, right? So you had to have people who would copy them. Um, and they would make copies of thousands of manuscripts. And so 
when somebody was copying it, sometimes they would insert things in the margins or in the footnotes, and sometimes they would make comments. And most likely, someone who's reading this passage knew the context of what was going on. They knew the legend of these pools. They knew the myth that these people were, were buying into. And so they probably wrote out in the margin what was happening as, as almost like a, a study note or a footnote. Well, whoever came along and copied that thought this is significant and probably inserted it. And then that one became copied and copied and copied. So when the King James came along and they translated their copy of God's Word, they were working off very few manuscripts. And the very few manuscripts that they were working off of contained the end of verse 3 and verse 4. And that's, that's why that is in, if you have a King James, New King James, you're going to see the end of verse 3 and verse 4 in there. But if you have a, a modern copy that is working off all of the reliable manuscripts from history, you're not going to see that in there. So, just something to, to give explanation for why there's a missing verse in your Bible. So this is not original, this is not inspired, but it does supply us with some helpful information as to what is going on. Uh, because while it's not inspired, this likely is the reason uh, for all of these sick and lame people at the pool of Bethesda. Now, in the time, in pagan religion... Uh, healing had become associated with water quite frankly, frequently and with pools. And it's likely that some of that thinking had taking, taken root in Jewish folklore. Uh, these pools were likely fed by mineral springs, which certainly do have some healing properties to them, and would cause the water to occasionally bubble up. And likely what has happened over time is a legend developed that when the waters bubbled up, the angel of the Lord had entered and would heal whoever jumped into the water first. And this is superstition at its worst. And it shows just how powerful false beliefs and superstitious ideas can take root and absolutely control people's lives. There was a multitude of invalids every day coming to these pools in superstitious hope for healing. And yet in ironic fashion, while this mass of sick and disabled people are looking to the mystical powers of a pool for their healing, the God of life, the Creator, walks in among them in human form. The only one who could truly give them healing, both physically and spiritually, was standing in their midst, and nobody knew it. Their focus was not on him, but upon the pool. But despite the multitude, Jesus zeroes in on one guy. Look at verse 5. That one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Take that in for a minute. 38 years ago was 1985. A lot has happened in our world in the last 38 years. Probably over half this room was not even born in 1985. 38 years this guy had been an invalid. Now we don't know the, the nature of his issue... But we do know he couldn't walk. He may or may not have been fully paralyzed. John 
doesn't tell us, but he probably was. But we do know for sure that his legs did not work. As he will explain, he needed someone else to put him in the pool. And he had been in this condition for 38 years. And likely much of that time was spent at this pool in superstitious hope that one day he would make it in first. And that's what makes this next verse so surprising. Look what Jesus says to the guy. Verse 6, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Now this is one of those times where you just know Jesus is doing something. Because if this was anyone else asking this question, I, I would think, what, what kind of question is that? He's been in this condition for 38 years, constantly coming to this pool in vain hopes that the pool might heal him. Of course he wants to be healed. On the face of it, I don't think there's a question he could have asked that has a more obvious answer. Which is why we have to assume that Jesus is doing something a little deeper here. Jesus, who knows this man, who knows his condition, who knows how long he's been in this condition, who knows how long he's been coming to this pool, asks him, do you want to be healed? Why did he ask this? Obviously, he's getting at something more here. Now, there's a lot of ideas here about why he asked this. Some say he was testing the man. Some say he's trying to elicit willingness on his part. Some say he was even rebuking him. These are all ideas that are put forth. I think he is likely asking a question that has deeper meaning than just physical healing. He's asking what Jesus has constantly offering people throughout this gospel is eternal life. Do you want to be healed? He's not just talking about his body. And he's done this in various fashions. He's done it through living water. He's done this, he will do it, for, uh, speaking of bread from heaven. He's done this speaking of a new birth. He, he does it here, speaking of healing. And just like he did with a Samaritan woman, when he made the offer of living water, that would really only be understood by her in hindsight, once it was understood who it was that was making that offer. And the same thing is going on here. Yes, he's speaking of physical well-being, but he is speaking of spiritual healing as well. Healing of body and soul. This is a loaded question that is meant to have meaning well beyond just the actual healing that is going to take place. But of course, this man does not understand all of this, nor does he understand who is speaking to him. So he responds with the same dullness of heart, that we have seen over and over in this gospel. The same dullness of heart that we all have apart from Christ. And he responds by only looking at his circumstances and even going so far as to blame others. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, this response should not be looked at favorably. As we'll see throughout this story, John does not paint this guy in a positive light at all. He is not like the Samaritan woman or the royal official who both respond in faith to Christ. This man has an altogether 
different response. And so his, his answer isn't to be viewed as a favorable affirmation of his desire to be well. Rather, I, I actually like the way that, that Carson described it. He said, this is the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. I think he nailed it. And notice, his condition in life, just to lay by this pool in vain hope, is really the fault of others. No one will put him in. And when he gets close, somebody jumps in before him. You know, the fact is, sometimes, sometimes life is hard. Sometimes things happen that can take away one's ability to function in the same way that everyone else does around you. And this can happen at a physical level. This can happen at a psychological level. This can happen at an economic level. But regardless, we all know that there are people who refuse to allow those kinds of circumstances, no matter how devastating they may be, to be determinative of their trust in God and His goodness. Joni Erickson Tata comes to mind. If you don't know who that is, she is a paralytic who has spent her entire life telling of the goodness of God and sharing the gospel with others. But on the flip side, there are those who allow their circumstances to control their outlook on everything. They begin to blame the world around them and see themselves as only a victim of this harsh world. And sometimes they go so far as to even blame God, the one who gave them life to begin with. And often because God is not supplying what they want the most, they turn their back on Him and put their hope in, in vain things like a pool. And this man is clearly in the latter camp. Remember, this man is a Jew, a part of the covenant people of God. Of all the people of the earth, this is the people. He, among them, should be confessing like David. Psalm 121, which we read, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But rather, he has turned to superstitious folklore, placing all his hopes there and all he cared about was getting healed in this pool. That was the full summation of his hope in this life. And he was blaming everyone else for why his hope had not come to fruition. But what is remarkable here is that Jesus, the one who did make heaven and earth, who is the source of all help, still shows himself to be this man's help. And he proceeds to have mercy upon him anyway, despite the fact that he was looking for hope in a cheap substitute. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now right here, Jesus has just displayed with power once again, who he is. And by this statement, he shows forth the power of his word, which is very important. It's going to come up and play a role in this unfolding discourse which is about to happen in the coming verses, where Jesus says in verse 28 that there is coming a day when the dead will rise when they hear the voice of the Son of God. 
Well, before Jesus makes that statement, he illustrates his power here by displaying it with a 38-year invalid who rises at the power of his voice, at the voice of God interrupting and shaming his vain hope in a superstitious pool. And yet this was actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 6. When God comes to save his people. Listen to that passage. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute sing for joy. This sign was an indicator that the God who saves had come. The Savior is here. The one who has the power to save God in the flesh is standing here demonstrating that power now. And this is the first statement that absolutely reveals who he is. It was a statement of power from the only Savior. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And that's exactly what this man did. He was immediately healed, and he took his bed, and he walked off. Notice, there is no record of any interaction with Jesus whatsoever. He doesn't thank him. He doesn't ask him who he is. He doesn't even get his name. He just takes his mat and leaves. After laying there for 38 years, he is now up, completely healed, carrying around the very mat that he's been lying on all of this time, but there is no acknowledgement of the one who had healed him, no acknowledgement of who Christ is. There is not even so much as a thank you. Pretty shocking response from this guy. Now let's look at what happens that leads to Jesus' second statement where Jesus shows himself to be judge. Look at the next paragraph. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now this is significant. John wants you to see that this took place on the Sabbath. He is setting the stage for the ensuing controversy and for the discourse of Christ that is to come. Now, when it says the Jews here, that is not talking about just some random Jewish citizens that happen to be standing by. That is shorthand for the Jewish leaders, scribes and Pharisees, and likely most, if not all, Pharisees. And these leaders see this man walking with his mat, and they rebuke him. Do you know what day it is? You can't be carrying around your bed. Now, for clarity, this man was not actually in violation of the Sabbath. He was, however, in violation of the oral tradition that had been built by the rabbinic order in regard to how one keeps the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath, as laid forth in the book of Exodus, was so that all of God's people would cease from their labors and rest on the seventh day, on Saturday, in honor of the Lord. This action this man was taking 
was not part of this man's labors. Jesus did not order this man to break the law. It was not unlawful for him to take his mat and to leave. But this was a serious charge he was receiving. According to Moses, actual violations of the Sabbath laws required the death penalty. So when these guys yelled out a charge of breaking Sabbath laws, this was serious business. And this guy knew it. However, his reply seems to be in keeping with his character. He is very quick to shift blame. Look what he says. And look where the emphasis is on what he says. Verse 11, But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Notice he brings in the healing here only as an identifier. The man who healed me, that man made me do it. He doesn't explain what happened. He doesn't explain what his condition was or expound on the fact that he was just leaving, not working, nothing. He just immediately blame shifts. And the Pharisees take the bait because much more of a threat to their traditions is not some random guy carrying around a mat, but someone going around performing signs and instructing people to carry their mats. That's much more of a threat. So they shift the focus off of him to the supposed instigator. And they asked him, who is this man? Verse 12, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice what their only concern is. Who told you to do this? They didn't ask a word about the healing. What were you healed from? How did it happen? None of that. They didn't even ask, who healed you? No, all they wanted to know was who told this guy to break their laws? Who told you to take up your bed? The sad part is, this guy doesn't even know. Look at verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So he gets questioned, and he looks around to try to find Jesus, and he cannot find the guy who healed him because Jesus had withdrawn into the crowd. And he had never bothered to ask him his name, so he had no idea. He doesn't know who he is. He can't even give an answer to these guys. He's just standing there dumbfounded before the Jews who had laid a serious accusation at his feet. And yet he didn't even know Jesus' name. Now, just as an aside, I want to insert what I think to be an important footnote here in our day that is dominated by charismatic ideas and theology. This story is a massive rebuke to those who would say that when any, anyone is, whenever someone is not healed, it is because of their lack of faith. The idea that is often taught in many circles is that it is always God's will to heal, but it is only when you have enough faith that that power can be exercised in your life. God's power is literally dependent upon your faith. And if ever you have sought healing from God and not received it, certainly it's not from God's lack of power, so obviously it's from your lack of faith. That is extremely common theology, and it is extremely abusive theology. I have seen firsthand the amount of destruction that those ideas can wreak in a person's life. Whenever something goes wrong medically, someone begins to doubt God's love for them. Or 
more often they doubt whether or not they even have genuine faith. And as a result, they lose sight of the gospel and focus in on attempting to conjure up enough of this faith to earn a healing. Because without faith, God can't do anything, right? Even worse, those churches that hold to this theology look upon sick people with suspicion, assuming that they are in their condition because of their lack of faith, while their own health just provides a source of pride, assuming that that is some kind of evidence of the favor of God in their life. It is sick and abusive theology, and it is not at all what Scripture teaches. There are many texts that demonstrate that. Epaphroditus, Timothy, and even the Apostle Paul all dealt with unhealed ailments. And I don't think anybody's going to charge them with a lack of faith. But this passage in particular, John 5, is one of the clearest rebukes. In fact, I would say it is the Achilles heel to that theology. Because this guy had no faith. He didn't even know Jesus' name. In fact, he was putting all of his faith and his hope in a magical pool and turning his back upon the God of Israel. He had no faith whatsoever. And even after he is healed, he doesn't even care to find out who Jesus is. It's not faith that healed this guy. It couldn't be. But rather, it was the sovereign power of Christ demonstrating his deity. Jesus is not limited by this man's faith or anybody else's. He is not limited at all. If he chose, he could eradicate all sickness and all disease from this world with a snap of his finger right now. And one day, he will do exactly that. But while we are in this fallen and cursed world, in these bodies of death, and while his plan of redemption is still unfolding, he has that sickness and disease remain. And he often allows his own people to face all kinds of maladies in this life. But the difference is for us, rather than it being a source of judgment, it's actually working out his purposes of sanctification in our lives. As Romans tells us, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that includes sickness, and disease. Is it always God's will will to heal? No, it is not. Can God and does God heal people? Absolutely he does. But that is his sovereign prerogative, and it's not promised to anybody in this life. And conjuring up enough faith is not the key. This guy had no faith, and he had no interest in Christ. But even though he didn't care to find out who Jesus is, Jesus once again finds him. Look at verse 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So later on, we we don't know how long, could have been the same day, it could have been one of the following days, Jesus sought this guy out and found him in the temple. And that is the, the temple precinct. This is the more general word for the temple area itself, not in the temple proper. Remember, there is a feast going on where much of the crowds would be at the time of this festival. But again, Jesus seeks this guy out, not the other way around. And when he finds him, 
he draws attention to the completeness of his healing. This was not a temporary or gradual healing that this man had received. This man was well, completely well. And Jesus draws attention to that fact, reminding him of his power. And then he issues a sobering warning. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now for this guy, that's a terrifying prospect. This guy spent the last 38 years of his life as an invalid. 38 years he was unable to do anything. We cannot even imagine the pain and the sorrow and just the the psychological torment that would have been involved in living like that for 38 years. What could possibly be worse than that? Well, there's only one thing. And you all know what it is. Jesus is speaking of hell. Hell will be worse than 38 years as an invalid. An eternity in conscious torment would be worse than 38 years as an invalid. In a place where, the, place where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. We don't like to think about that. Hell does not get much attention in our day. It is not thought of as loving, nor compassionate, nor encouraging to speak of hell. It's hard to build a big church if you preach on hell. It's even thought that it's hard to win the lost if you tell them about hell. But here's the reality. Do you know who it is in the Bible who taught on hell more than anyone else? It's Jesus. It wasn't the Apostle Paul. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't John. Though they all taught on various forms, the one who taught on it the most was Jesus. No one spoke on hell and the realities of hell more than Jesus. In fact, he spoke on hell more than he did on heaven. Why? Because he loves us. Warning someone about hell is not an unloving thing to do. It is the most loving thing that we can do for those who are heading in that direction. Hell is not a subject that we can afford to avoid. It is not some ghastly medieval concept that we civilized 21st century Americans have just grown past. Hell is a place where the majority of the people that you see out in public every day will spend their eternities. Why? Because humanity by nature is evil. Because humans by nature are sinful and not righteous. Because humans by nature live for self and worship creation rather than living for God and worshiping the Creator. Hell is a place that was created for Satan and his angels. And apart from Christ, everyone is willingly following him there by living according to Satan's ways instead of God's ways. And if you live like the devil, you will receive the same judgment as the devil. It is the place of God's eternal and just wrath upon all evil. And it is eternal conscious torment. It's overwhelming to the mind and the emotions. Most of us want us to move on now. Let's, let's, let's keep going. 
But it is for that very reason that we must remind ourselves of it. We must speak of it, just like Christ did. It is a reality, whether we like it or not. Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Yes, Christ spoke of hell, and he did it out of love. And he does so here as well. Stop sinning, lest something worse happen to you. The obvious and only implication that could be is hell. Jesus is saying to this guy, you got your physical reform. You got what you wanted. You got your healing. But there is something more important with far greater implications, and that is moral reform. You must cease from sin lest it drag you to hell. The thing I want us to notice here, Christ has now shown himself not only to be Savior, but to be judge. Who else could make such a declaration to this man? that something worse was coming for him if he did not change. Who could say that authoritatively like this? Now, the way this is constructed, most commentators believe Jesus is implying that his original infirmity that struck him for 38 years was actually caused by sin. Now, that's not always the case with sickness and disease or anything of the like. In fact, we're going to see in John chapter 9 with a man that was born blind, Christ very clearly clarifies that it was not due to any particular sin that he was blind. And certainly it was due to the curse of sin, but it was not a direct result of a particular sin. So not all issues that we face in life are tied to particular sins, but some most definitely are. Sin has consequences, not only in the life to come, but also in this life. And very clearly here, Christ is saying that his suffering has been a result of his sin. But he's also telling him that his suffering will be far worse, infinitely worse, if he does not cease from his sin. And the reason Christ can authoritatively declare that to this man is because he is his judge. He knows what's going on in his heart. He knows what's happened to him. And in the following discourse, Christ is going to make this very clear as he plays off of what has happened in this story. Look with me over at verse 21. Look what Jesus says. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He is both Savior and Judge. He has the power to issue life, and He has the power to issue judgment. Now you would think, after what Christ has done for this man, that these words would strike the fear of God in him. 
The point of telling a sinner to stop sinning is, yes, to point them to their need of righteousness, but it's also to point them to their need of a Savior. Because anyone who is thinking correctly knows that they cannot do it on their own. This man doesn't ask anything. He doesn't ask, how do I stop sinning? Or how do I obtain forgiveness from the sins of my past? Or what must I do to be saved? None of that. Instead, look what he does. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Rather than following Christ, he went and ratted him out to the authorities, knowing full well how hostile they were about this situation. And his actions began the persecution of Christ, the persecution of the one who had shown himself to be God. How dull and blind we are apart from the grace of God. Next week, I'm going to come back and we're going to consider the results of all of this in these few verses we're not going to get to. But I want to close with just a consideration from this story so far. This passage ought to be a warning to us all that we can easily elevate desires in this life above our desires for God. And what is really scary is that very often God may providentially give us the very desires that we've elevated above Him. And when He does, it's not His favor in our lives. It is His judgment. This man got exactly what he wanted And it did not serve him on an eternal level at all because it did not drive him to Christ. In fact, it appears like the opposite. It appears like it made him apathetic to Christ. He was more interested in enjoying his newfound health and avoiding trouble with the authorities than he was in pursuing Christ. He did not even take time to find out who this man really is, nor did he take seriously his warning. Instead, he just went to get the Pharisees off his back. And the same was true for the Pharisees, actually. What they wanted more than anything was honor and power. And because they wanted that so much, when their man-made laws were threatened, they were so driven by maintaining what they were truly after that they were absolutely blinded to the identity of their own Messiah. So much so that they began to persecute him. They began to persecute God in the flesh. That is how blinding, inordinate desires can be. When you have desires that are elevated above the Lord, you may receive them. That may be the only thing you receive. Brothers and sisters, it is not wrong. Hear me correctly. It is not wrong to possess things in this life. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. God has given us all good things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. It's not wrong to work towards things like health or owning a home or building a business or whatever. Those are all wonderful things, and we are to be good stewards of the life that God has given us, the life that we have here. We can and should do those things unto the glory of God. But it is when we make those things or anything else, the centrality of our hope and our focus that they become what drives us and what we're living for. 
It is then when they have usurped the Creator in our life and we have fallen back into the sins of Romans chapter 1 of worshiping creation rather than the Creator. We have to keep a right perspective and center our hopes and our driving desires on the only one who is worthy of such things. And the truth is, in the long run, all you really have is Christ. If you are in Christ, He is the only thing you have that will transcend eternity. Everything else can be taken from you in a moment's notice. Your health, your family, your wealth, your business, everything. But not Christ. Not Christ. Only He cannot be taken from you. Not only, not only is He all you really have, He's also all you really need. And at the day of judgment, it will bear witness to the truthfulness of that statement. That's no exaggeration. You may think, well, that's not true. I need food. I need water. But yeah, to sustain your physical life. But one day you will all stand before Christ alone as judge. And it is only those who have trusted in Him and have been forgiven by His death on the cross and have been robed in His righteousness that will share in His resurrection from the dead. It is only those who have Christ now who will have Christ then. And if you've never, if you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Christ now, if you do not have Him now, his offer stands wide open to you this day if you will just trust in Him. If you will just trust in Him. If you turn from your sins and put your hope in Christ, in Christ alone, He says He will not cast out anyone who comes to Him. Come to Christ. Because for eternal life, for all of eternity, all you have and all you need is Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for rescuing us from the pit of hell. Thank you, Lord. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to keep you at the center of our lives. Help us to worship you as you deserve. Help us to be the reward of the efforts of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. Help us to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.